Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to today's MedHeads show. Today we have Craig Payne, one of our regular guests. Craig, how are you? Yeah, I'm great, Fergal. And yourself? Oh, very good, very good. So I suppose today we're going to take the opportunity of talking about connections and connectedness and how connections and connectedness impact upon the descent into substance use disorders and also how it facilitates the recovery from substance use disorders. So Craig, first of all, how would you define connection and connectedness? How would you define those terms? Well, it's, I don't know, but I suppose it's the opposite of isolation. Um, that's that's and, as good a definition as any, wouldn't you say? It's the opposite of isolation. Well, <laughs> I, I reckon it is, but and it's the the addiction tends to lead to isolation, um, and tends or to lead does, to the drop. Does isolation lead to the addiction? Well, it's who knows? Chicken and egg, mate. Chicken and egg. But yeah, um, yeah. either way, isolation becomes killer, and connection is a really important step in starting to progress forwards and re-establishing connections. So another way of thinking about it might be that connectedness and isolation are different faces of the same coin. And, and as we experience a descent into substance use disorder, a lack of connection, which is isolation, then drives all the psychosocial complexity around substance use disorder. And then what we have to do when we're engaging in recovery is we have to flip that coin over and start focusing on social connectedness to then and act as the engine to, to recovery or of recovery. Yeah, and positive connections. Uh, positive you know, connections. May, may be... The yeah, because there may be connections present, but they're not necessarily positive. And, and yeah, getting people to yeah. see through that at times it can be really difficult. Yeah. So, you know, well, well that, yeah. that's, that's, that's a useful segue to my next question then. How do you define a positive versus a negative connection? And how, how do people see the difference? Well, it's by the impact it's having on your life. But I think the, the, the further people go into addiction, the more they start to realize that, you know, a common theme I hear is, oh, they're not really friends, they're just people I use with, or, and that's starting to become a whole lot clearer to me, you know? And so, yeah, um, yeah the connections that they do have aren't having a positive impact on their life. Um, and just slowly trying to um, work out with them, you know, where they sit in things and, um, and and what might be missing from their life and uh, whether they're getting everything they need from the connections they have um, is, is where we start. Mm. So you often hear the phrase, you know, oh, it started out when they got into the wrong group. They got into the wrong group of friends. What is it about people or what is it about the wrong group of friends that makes people so attracted to the wrong group? You know, why, why, are, why are people who are vulnerable, I suppose I've just answered my own question as the vulnerability, but why are people who are vulnerable attracted in some way to the wrong group of friends? Um, I th think it's just the, the search for connection. Um, and, 
you know, people we we all need, we all want to be around people, and let's not forget too that the substance itself will also provide some sort of relief and some sort of po- positive feeling, and so the two can get um, confused because um, I'm around these people and I'm I'm u- using a substance and 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 I feel good while I'm doing it, you know. So um, and maybe and maybe these are using the substance. So we're all in it and together. We're all in it together. Uh, and we're yeah. mates and we hang out and this is what we do together. And right. Yeah. So it's no different than going to, you know, Sunday school, Bible class. We're all sharing in a common activity, a common goal. It just happens to be shooting heroin. Absolutely. That, that, that's yeah. the common interest that, that, that's at hand. So, and the thing that keeps them bonded together. So it's the perpetuating. It's it's a common activity, and also then the the environment and the and the the the, the dependency associated with the drug use. Yeah. Yeah, the shared well, experience. How, how does it start? So if someone wakes up and says, "You know what? I'm just going to hang around with a different set of people today than I normally do." How how, how does this start? Well, I don't think that necessarily develops that way. Um, people people don't necessarily seek out other drug users it it just happens that um maybe it's at a moment of weakness or maybe a, a moment of just just a, a moment of vulnerability as you said before where something's offered um and it's taken um because, and you know peer pressure plays a, a, a lot in a lot in this stuff um you know no one wants to be the, the outsider or the one left out so you might be in a social situation and and it's offered and and this is what happens but um yeah, and it, and it just became, and then the, the connections formed, and you keep going. So, in your experience, then, is it just you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and someone offered it to you at a party? Is that the biggest reason why why addiction starts, or or that first you starts, or are there any other situations? Well, what do you think about starts? Well, yeah. What do you think about the idea of kind of index drugs and gateway drugs? I mean, you know, does that does that form a, a part of this discussion? You know, starting on cannabis leads to, you know, shooting up methamphetamine and heroin together. Look, there's there's a pathway there, but it doesn't always start out that way. Some people do start on harder drugs. Some people do start on less drugs. Alcohol's never talked about as a gateway drug. Now, yeah. that's the most acceptable <laughs> drug there is around. And yeah. people just start to look for something that helps them feel better. They see other people doing things that make them feel better. It looks like fun. looks like they're enjoying themselves. Mm. Oh, okay. Maybe if I do that, I'll start to enjoy myself. It's generally just starting to look for something to make yourself feel better because you're in a position where you're not feeling better. You're not feeling that great. You're not feeling great. Cert- yeah. Yeah. And it's the search, search for, for some relief. So are you not feeling great because you don't have a healthy set of connections to begin with or are you feeling great for or are you not feeling great for some other reason? Is it a lack of social connectedness to begin with? No, um because people um often people can often come with um great social connections. Um and <coughs> excuse me. And things can, people can start out with great social connections, but what happens over the course of time or tends to happen over the course of time is that the longer they remain in use and in addiction, those social connections will drop off because the overriding um, 
point of, of living becomes the addiction and, and the need, need for the substance. So people can often start off with mm. quite healthy and connected lives um, and just slowly those connections will start to drop off the, the further they fall into addiction. So I often use the helicopter analogy when I'm thinking about you know, uh, connectedness. So I, I think, of, you know, what's my immediate familial connection? So we've got family, so like, like spouse or children or parents. And then we've got immediate social circles. So then we've got extended family, relatives, and then we've got buddies that we hang out with, and we've got work colleagues. And then we've got yep. um, forensic institutions, government institutions. And those, that's how I think about relationships of, with, between patients and, and their external world. Um, I often find that, that when people start uh, you know, descending into substance use disorder, that their social connections, it's like the tide coming in and out. You know, the, 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 the more tenuous the relationship is with someone, the more likely it is to be lost during, um, during, uh, during the, the, the path towards, you know, the trapdoor falling in. So the last relationship to, 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 to be destroyed really is, is kind of the immediate, well, in, in my experience, it's the immediate relationship between, you know, spouse and family. Is that your experience? How would you define this loss of connectedness? Um, no, it can happen quite slowly. Um, mm -hmm. And as things start to fall off, um, you know, maybe they start off with, you know, they might play a lot of sport, they might be working, they might have lots, lots, of, you know, lots, lots of friends and some great things happening, um, but just start using drugs. And, and look, let's not forget the, the mental health side of things either. Um, you know, mm. maybe you know, we look at depression and anxiety and all these all these things, and I, I think they're they're major drivers as well, is because people are seeking some sort of relief from the situation that, that's been in. Because I don't know, I, I think there's something in within themselves that's just not sitting right at the time, um, and so there's there's this uneasiness, and they're looking for a relief from it. And yeah, if it, they drugs provide that, alcohol provides that. Um, but if that becomes the main focus and over time some of these connections drop off, the only thing that they can fall back on that they know will make them feel good is the substance or the behaviour. So, Or the people with whom they share that substance and that behaviour. Yeah, but um, then a lot of the time people may just, like isolation in a room is, um, is a common part of the story. Uh, where right. they stop, they stop even seeing drug friends a lot of the time because it can be a world where there's not a lot of trust and there's not a lot of, um, you know, there's not a lot of safety at times, and they start to realise that oh, they're not my friends, and it'll just become purely days can become purely about the substance, and that's where that that's where the addiction's really fallen into that deepest deepest darkest spot. So you have patients who literally spend days on end. In their own room, taking drugs and nothing else. Yeah, uh, yeah, taking drugs and drinking alcohol. For some people, that'll be the only thing that um, that gets them up in the morning. Yeah, alcohol especially. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they'll get up and the, a routine will be going to the getting up, going to the bottle shop, uh, and coming home, sitting there drinking, going mm -hmm. out. And the only time they may get up and go out is to. Um, get more alcohol or a little bit of food and that just becomes the daily cycle and slowly as the the guilt and the shame sort of builds up over that they just 
drop into that. They don't want to see anyone else. They don't, they don't want to answer the phone. They don't want to answer a knock on the door. So how do you turn it around? What happens? What, what's, the, what's the flip side of that? That's a very yeah, so, good description of isolation. What's the flip side? Starting to... One of the things I hear quite often, um, and, you know, being in recovery myself, I know it was part of my story, um, mm. it was starting to reestablish those connections and starting to um, get some identity back um, slowly over time if the only thing you're doing is is using or that, that that's one of the few connections you have, um, there's a complete loss of identity. You know, you look at back at teenage years, uh, people are playing sport, um, you know, working, all these sorts of things. And, and slowly if they've dropped off, it's it's starting to re-examine what the, what the interests are or what their interests used to be um, and finding pathways back into that. If that's um, maybe going back to study, if that's chasing it, you know, maybe they always wanted to, I don't know, be a um, be a builder, but mm. never never went down that path. So, all right, can we look at getting into apprenticeships? Um, can we look at um, just starting to get back to work slowly like, instead of just jumping back into full-time work? Can we jump back into it two or three days at a time and, and finding out where their interests lie um, and then starting to navigate a path that way. But at some point, there is a time when a patient who's using drugs all day long and nothing else has got to reach out to someone, has got to make yep. a phone call. Where do drug services sit in that space? Well, obviously, yeah, the, the most important part is, is asking for that help. Um, mm. And depending on the level of isolation, um, you know, sometimes they're not able to do that themselves, but they might need a friend or family member to, to do that for them. Um, and yeah, starting with that drug service is the way to go, you know, um, direct line will get a lot of calls, um, and, and other services of just people looking for, looking for help and where to go. So, um, but yeah, definitely starting that conversation uh, with a with a counsellor or with an intake clinician or, or someone around mm. um, what might be needed and what that next step might be, which um, for in a lot of the times, maybe, um, maybe a detox to start things, um, mm. but definitely counselling to start to try and uh, yeah. try, try and regulate it. And everyone's yeah. going to start at a different level. So, you know, some sure. people will, uh, yeah, counselling may help them understand that, the next level of treatment is needed. So you've described relationships with therapists and you've described relationships with, with employment, so, you know, getting back into work. How important is it to, to reestablish connections with friends and family, loved ones? Yeah, extremely important. We all want to be loved. We yeah. all want to feel close to someone. We all want to have people to, to call if we need to. Um, and, and just to, just to hang out with and, and just just to just to be around and want healthy loving relationships so um, and part of the recovery journey um, a lot of the time we can start to rebuild those relationships and start to form more positive connections how do you do that how do you tell someone who's had to watch their spouse descend into you know, the, the pits of despair and drug use. 
How do you say to them, oh, you know, they want to recover, they want to change, you need to be part of that. That's, that can be quite challenging as well. Uh, you know, that, that's a message that, not, that, that would be difficult to hear sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's where boundaries are really important, boundaries of communication. Well, tell us um, more about that. Well, for each, for each friend, for each family member, the experience is going to have been different. So, uh, and look, the boundaries we set within our personal relationships um, are all different. And, uh, but what, what are they willing to put up with? What do they need from the relationship? What, what lengths will they go to? Are they willing to help? Um, you know, maybe someone wants to move back home. Mm. Um, big, you know, and, and housing is a big, big issue um, and a, a big driver in, um, in, in, in addiction as well, in, in keeping people, some people stuck in addiction. So, um, you know, maybe they want to come back home, but the family need to sit and have a conversation around what that looks like. And setting the boundaries on uh, on engagement in treatment, engagement yeah. in social activities, engagement in just even general behaviour and attitude yeah. around the house. Yeah. Um, who, so, who has yep. that conversation? Well, who's part of that conversation? Is it just between the family member and the patient, or is there, or, or does a therapist come in and get involved in that? Well, a lot of the time it will just be between the um, family member and the and the patient, but definitely therapists can can get involved in that situation as well. Um, or, and, or at least the therapist can prepare the patient for that conversation. Is that is that another way of looking at it? Yeah, absolutely, and start to work on yeah. them as to as to what boundaries are important um, yeah. and, and what they what they need from the situation as well. So I would imagine then that you would spend a lot of time talking to your patients about how to make these conversations and to acknowledge that these are valid concerns that their family members have about, you know, no drug use, appropriate behavior, you know, turning up on time, you know, behaving yourself at work. Uh, you know, these, these, are, these are valid concerns. It's not us trying to bully people. It's, it's, these are valid concerns that have to be dealt with. No, absolutely. A big part of it is the, um, is, is the patient actually taking ownership and responsibility for their yeah. past actions. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't just get to waltz in and say, hey, I'm going into treatment now. Everyone forgive me and let's walk yeah. away. And this is a big part of things is getting them to to see is, and to try and understand why friends and family might be um, yeah. hesitant to, to allow them back in. Um, and, yeah, and, and what they might need to offer a lot of the time, if they can go to friends and family and say, this is what I'm willing to offer, this is what I'm willing to work work towards, um, mm. I acknowledge that this has been, my past behaviours haven't been great and this is what I've done, um, mm. and yeah, and get on the front foot with that, um, mm. it can it, it can help. But yeah, also understanding that just because you say sorry doesn't mean that someone has to forgive you, you know, some of the, well, there's consequences yes. to the behaviours in addiction. I was going to ask you, is forgiveness an automatic right? No, definitely it's not. not. It's not. Sometimes relationships are irrevocably broken. Yep, and and that's something that has to be accepted at times. Um, mm. Just because you say sorry, they don't have to accept that. Um, yeah. It it, yeah. it doesn't change the action. And a lot of the time, one of the messages I do try and get across is, um, this is going to take evidence, 
and you know may, maybe over the course of time there can be um, forgiveness but yeah. it may not happen straight away and there's going to have to be a clear pattern of ongoing um, commitment to the recovery yeah. and clear pattern of changes in behavior and changes in attitudes yeah. and over the course of time that evidence base may open up enough and, and, and the boundaries can start to be shifted a little bit more. Yeah. And then, so, and then we keep going from there. So relatives, loved ones may be so shocked and just angry and resentful that they just aren't there. They themselves aren't ready to forgive. But a, a lack of an immediate acknowledgement of forgiveness does not mean a permanent lack of forgiveness. That's what you're saying. No, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Um, it can change over the course of time. Yeah, yeah. So it must be really difficult for someone to make that first phone call to say to their, 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 their estranged partner, I want to get clean. What, what yeah. does that feel? How do, how do you help someone in that situation? Um, you can sit with them. You can encourage them to do it. Um, you can look at the positives of it, but also just trying to reinforce that message that unless they start to acknowledge their behaviors and start to move on and start to ask for the help mm. um, and accept the help and start yeah. to change their attitudes towards help, um, mm. that nothing's going to change. And that's a very frightening concept, isn't it? I mean, surely it's just easier just to keep going with the drugs, isn't it? Hey, it's not easy to own up to the mistakes you've made and the, not, and the things no. you've done and, and the broken promises, you know, yeah. the constant... You know, and this is part of the thing. It's like, oh, yeah, but this time will be different. This will be different. You know, oh, this time I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. And friends and family have heard it all before. Mm. And it's just, yeah. no, mate, I, I need you to show me that it's going to be different. I need more than just words this time. Yeah. So this is what I need from you. Yeah. And uh, if you start doing these things, then maybe let's talk about step two, step three, step four. And, yeah. and we'll keep going from there. Right. Because I, I'm, I'm putting myself in, uh, imagining myself in that situation where I've, I've had my life, my, the layers of my identity, the onion layers, slowly ripped apart by drug use. And it's just basically me in a room and that's, that's it. And then I have to make a phone call to get help. And then I have to, that help, all that help does is say, you need to own up to what a horrible person you've been and you need to say, acknowledge your, your, your crimes. And then you, then you need to reach out to the people that you have hurt the most. And that's what your recovery is going to be like. I mean, it, it, it's, it's frightening. It's awful. It but, is. Um, it, it's very shameful. And it's rather than face up to all that, it's yeah, sometimes so easier for people to just say sitting in the room and I'll just keep yeah, using, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but, so we have to acknowledge the vulnerability that our patients uh, live in on a daily basis. They are so fragile. And recovery yeah. is yeah. so fragile, isn't it? It is, um, and this is why, again, it's, it's, it's reinforcing that this is a process and it's going to be full of stops and starts, but, um, again, that, does, that doesn't give the person the right to relapse. Yes. Um, you know, if they, if they do lapse or do relapse, it's got to be taken as a learning opportunity. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and that's where that guilt and shame can build up again, and it's hard, very hard to reach out and, to, and to, it's, it's been hard to put the hand up in the first place. Yeah. So how do you go when you've been re been re rebuilding these relationships and then say, yeah. 
I fucked up again. I fucked up and again, yes. That's awful. It is, but yeah, I don't want to stay yeah. here. So I need you to know that I fucked up, but let's move yeah. for, I, I need your help to move forwards from this. Yeah, um, yeah. And ho- hopefully this is something that over the course of time, there's, if, where, where that evidence base has been shown um, and they've, they've shown the improvement and they've shown the things they're working towards. But because, yeah, like let's not... Uh, We've touched on relapse. It, it can happen at any stage, and it can happen at, at, a, at a just just any sort of trigger. Um, moment's notice. Exactly. But if mm. we've established some positive relationships, we don't need to stay stuck there. Yeah. We can yeah. feel a little bit more comfortable about approaching uh, a loved one and saying, "Hey, yeah. it's happened. I don't yeah. want to stay here. Like, can, can help me move forwards again." So I want to talk a little bit now about the the perspective of the loved one, right? So there you are. For the last five years, you've seen your spouse, your child, um, you know, the special person in your life descend into depravity. And every time you've said to this person, just pull yourself together. You know what you've got to do. And then, and then you say to them, oh, I don't want you using in the house. If you use one more time, you're going to be kicked out. And so then they, then they get arrested by the police and then they're kicked out and it's, uh, you never come again. And then you say, oh, we're going to lock them up, throw away the key. They're, they're dead to us, right? And then, and then they get a phone call maybe a year later or six months later. I, I don't know. They get, sometime later, they get a phone call from that same person. Hello, I'm going to come clean. That too is also a very challenging, challenging uh, phone call to receive. And the point I want to make here is that, that is we both know, we all know, anyone working in, in drug and alcohol services knows that reaching out to, 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 to people in, in uh, addiction is one of the most important things that you can do, but it's also one of the hardest things to do. You need to, if you want your loved one to get better, you need to, just as much as they're reaching out to you, you need to reach out to them. And that's really difficult to swallow because they, this is the same person that you're reaching out to that has completely screwed up their life and perhaps your life for the last five to ten years. You know, so, so what, what would you say to that? Um, again, I think that falls into the category of, um, you know, Hey, say if that was a phone call to say, "Hey, I've I've cleaned up my act and and I want to come back." Like let's say it was a broken marriage, you know, and I, I've cleaned up my act. I want to come back. Things have changed. Blah blah. Um, that may that's not not enough because there's been a life full of broken promises before that, and maybe the the partner in that case or ex partner can say, "Look, I'm here to support you, but this doesn't mean that you know I'll take you back." You know, mm. if, there, if there's ways that I can support you, because yeah. sometimes that relationship has been fractured to a point that there is no repair. Yeah. Uh, and, and there needs to, be, needs to be an acceptance of that. And yeah. there's a grieving yeah. process associated with that. And so forgiveness doesn't always mean that things go back to the way they were. You can forgive yeah. someone, but yeah, you know, you still need to enforce your boundaries yeah. and make sure that you're, you're safe within that relationship right. too. Is, is there a role for therapists in helping the, the family members, the loved ones of patients with drug addiction, just as much as there is a therapist for a, a patient with drug addiction? Is there a therapist for the family? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, yeah. organizations um, e- exist, you know, around shark, do a lot of things around, fa- yeah. around family drug help. Yeah. Um, there's the family drug help lines, yeah. um, support lines. And then you've got Al-Anon and Narcanon as well, yeah. which are four family members yeah. suffering with a loved one suffering addiction, yeah. you know, and it's an opportunity mm. to share experiences and learn from other people going through the same thing. So there is an established body of therapy uh, that, that, that acknowledges the needs of the family, not just the needs of the patient, but also the needs of the family, because supporting for the family is as important almost as supporting the, the patient. Oh, absolutely. Addiction's a really yeah. selfish disease, you know, and it's easy for the person in addiction to think that it's all about them. But, you know, and a lot of the time you under, understand the impact it's had on friends and family, but um, no, this has a this has major impacts, and there's that thought. Oh, I'm only hurting myself by doing this. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. not. There's yeah. this is having far-reaching effects on on relationships and on other people who can't understand why that. As as a mother or a father, they can't understand why it's not enough or why they can't help. Yeah. Um, and so they need they need some education and support around the fact too that. Um, they can't solve. They they can't be the ones that solve this either. And 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 yeah, support in going through that because it must be a horrible thing to watch as a parent. So we're run out of time. But tell me, can you can you give us one final message of hope around connectedness? Yeah, relationships can be can be repaired um, with with some with some ownership. Uh, and some heart and you know and a willingness to commit commitment to treatment um, mm. things can turn around and the, and the isolation can turn around um, yeah. you can find the joy joy in life again in um, in just trying to fill life with some of the meaningful activities that that you used to Craig as always thank you for your pearls of wisdom see you soon Cheers, Fagel. That's all for today's MedHeads. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and thank you for joining us.